Yes, welcome everyone. We are in the post-human era. What does this mean? What does it mean to be post-human? We are going to explore this fascinating, inspiring and exciting notion in our podcast, Post-Humans. Plural because we are going to interview scientists, artists, philosophers, scholars, and everyone who is engaging with this notion and who is helping us to understand more thoroughly and more deeply what does it mean to be post-human in the 21st century. So please be ready for a fascinating journey into the post-human. All right, so dear uh, posthumans, I'm extremely honored and excited to have here a real interesting, intriguing, original thinker of the 21st century. We have Anders Sandberg here with us. Anders is a very well-known transhumanist. He's also a senior researcher fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford. Uh, First of all, Anders, thank you so much for being with us and for discussing transhumanism and far futures with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. So welcome. So a little introduction, although he doesn't need one, but Anders Sandberg is a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute in, uh, at the University of Oxford in England. His research centers on management of low probability, high impact risks, estimating the capability of future technologies, the ethics of human enhancement, and very long-range futures. Now, this is exactly what we're going to do uh, with Anders. We're going to have two interviews. The first one, we're going to talk about, uh, let's say, emerging technologies, uh, present and close future, and transhumanism. Again, Anders has been a, a very a leading voice in the field for many years now within a transhumanist philosophy. And then we're going to go with a second interview in which we are going to talk about far futures. And again, there are not many thinkers who really engage with the, with the thought and with the possible implications of far future be, because it's definitely a, a, a real challenge. But Anders does. <laughs> So, first of all, again, thank you so much, uh, Anders, uh, for being here. And I should also mention that we are at Princeton at the wonderful conference Envision. Oh, yeah. Envision is awesome. It's awesome. So, Anders, can you tell us a little more, how did you get interested in transhumanism? Again, you've been uh, a leading voice in this field for many years. Uh, and how is uh, maybe the field changing? And um, what is your approach about the transhumanist philosophy? So... It all began with me growing up in a fairly boring suburb of Stockholm in Sweden in the 1970s. And I read all the science fiction books at the local library as a form of escapism. And then I decided, well, actually, I could make this real, perhaps. So I read all the science books at the local library and then at the branch library. And then I started hanging out at the municipal library and then the university library. And eventually I ended up in Oxford. So for me, the idea that the world could be radically different from what it currently is, has always been a present uh, concept. And I realized that, yeah, science and technologies are, of course, things that are most obvious, at least to me, ways that it could radically change things. So that brought me into transhumanism. I read the Ed Regis, The Great Mambo Chicken and the Transhuman Condition, which is a brilliant overview of uh, transhumanism in the late 80s, um, as well as Barrow and Tipler's Anthropic Cosmological Principle that got me into this interest of a very large-scale far future. And then in the early 90s, I entered the world of the internet when I reached the university. And I joined the Extropians mailing list, and suddenly 
I was surrounded by people like me, people who were very interested in thinking about these things, many of them uh, far older and more experienced. And uh, then we were discussing and bickering and dis uh, developing these ideas. Gradually, I realized that maybe we should start a Swedish transhumanist association. I got involved in setting up the World Transhumanist Association. And uh, uh, think Fatank uh, trying to kind of demonstrate that you could even commercially make use of these ideas. And then after I got my PhD about computational neuroscience, in parallel, I've been thinking about ways of improving brains and improving stuff. So then I got in at the Future Humanity Institute in Oxford, in the earliest project there about the social and ethical implications of cognitive enhancement. And of course, Oxford being Oxford, I decided, okay, I'm not never leaving here. So I stayed around at the Future Humanity Institute, which is still led by Nick Bostrom, who I think is the mayor and transhumanist philosopher. And we have been looking at future-oriented questions ever since. Uh, Anders, thank you so much for giving us an insight about uh, the, the, the path that brought you to transhumanist philosophy. I would like to ask you a question connected to what you just said. How do you improve a brain? Well, that is, of course, what the philosopher in me immediately says, wait a minute, what do I mean by improve? Mm -hmm. And the neuroscientist immediately will say, oh, there are so many bottlenecks. So if we think about our everyday life, uh, the standard thing to complain about is memory. And there are ways, of course, of improving your memory by learning memory arts and memorization techniques, which are astonishingly powerful for certain forms of information. But you can also change the brain plasticity. So there are various forms of medication, typically developed to treat Alzheimer's, that in healthy people also seem to be improving the ability for the brain to acquire new information. You can also make the brain more plastic by using electrical and magnetic stimulation in the right spots. Uh, and this has again been demonstrated to improve uh, the ability to learn or retrieve information if you do it right. If you do it wrong, it might actually impair it. Now, the problem is memory is a relatively small thing, actually. These days we have pens and papers, we have uh, books. The, the Renaissance scholars would have envied our ability to record information without having to memorize it. So today we would say, oh, we really want to improve intelligence, which is a much taller order because intelligence is the ability to solve new problems that you've never seen before in general environment. That is having all the parts of the mind working together and that is typically much more complicated. It's not like you can fix that with a simple drug. On the other hand, sometimes you do have a bottleneck like working memory. So if you train your working memory or find an, a cognitive enhancer drug that helps your working memory, your effective intelligence goes up. But so could it do just because you took a motivation enhancer that gave you more energy. So now you want to solve the problem. The problem is, of course, that improvement is a complex thing. One needs to understand, what am I trying to do? And what are my strengths and weaknesses? That requires a quite a lot of introspection and sometimes cognitive neuroscience. So often when I talk about these things, students want to hear how they should be improving their minds. And they're all hoping that there's a pill like in the movie, Limitless. You just take it and become a super genius. Unfortunately, there isn't anything like that. Even if something like that had existed with those side effects, it's still too simplistic because what we want to do is very different uh, in different situations. Having focused attention is brilliant for writing academic essays, but dangerous out in traffic. We want to be flexible about it. And for that, we need the general understanding. What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to uh, be? 
So which kind of technologies are we talking about? Is that nanotechnology? Is that uh, mind uploading? What kind of technology could be useful to achieve this? So in general, right now, our ways of interacting with the brain are very crude and primitive. So we certainly have drugs, but they affect a lot of parts of the brain uh, of a, and, uh, in a very indiscriminate manner. Uh, there are ways of targeting better, and in the future, we might have ways of making microcapsules that go to a particular part of the brain and we release them with a magnetic field. We're getting better at, better at the brain stimulation and various other tricks. But the dream is, of course, to have this high-fidelity method of interfacing with the brain. Many people are hoping that we get neural interfaces that allow us to receive and send signals directly to computers. This is going to take a while because it's not easy at all to develop something that works in the body. The body is a horrible environment. The people building oil platforms for the North Sea have an easier time because the North Sea is not actively trying to sabotage them, but the immune system is actively trying to get rid of anything foreign. So advances in just surface technologies that makes implants just remain better in the body might be just as important as insights in neuroscience about where we want to put it. But long-term neural interfaces perhaps aided by nanotechnology that allow us to do it in a gentler way. Uh, and of course, genetic engineering in form of gene therapy to either make neurons light sensitive, so you can use optogenetics uh, to communicate with them or uh, modify them in other ways. That's going to be very powerful. In the really long run, I'm interested in what I call brain emulation. That is sometimes called uploading. Although uploading seems to imply that the mind is already software and it's just something that you can move around. That's making some pretty deep philosophical assumptions which might be unwarranted. But the best way of testing it would be to scan a brain, make a replica in the computer, simulate the same causal activity and see, does it actually behave like the original brain? And if you upload a philosopher like Searle, who is very skeptical about this, and Sim Searle responds, oh dear, I feel conscious, I need to write a paper. We have learned something. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So what are the ethical implications of all of, all of this, specifically thinking, for instance, the risk of digital control? I mean, this is something that is already happening in, in, in technologies that are outside of ourselves. Now, if we have an implant in our brain, what about, for instance, hacking? What about, again, uh, technologies of control? How mm. do you feel about that? Uh, so I do think they are a serious issue. Mm. Uh, and to some degree, it might not matter because we're already carrying around smartphones, which are more powerful uh, tools of control uh, than you can imagine. But still, there is something very unnerving about having a part of you, even though it's a technological part, maybe not working for you, but for somebody or something else. So, for example, there are deep brain stimulators. They work just like a pacemaker. They send signals, but the wire goes to your brain. Many of them have wireless connections. But no encryption, no password, no logging. Uh, and it's possible to hack them. Now, depending on where in the brain they're located, the effect might be everything from just removing the therapeutic benefit to our operant conditioning. If it's in a particular part of the brain, in principle, somebody could stimulate in a kind of a positive emotion every time the victim saw him and a negative emotion every time the victim saw his competitor subtly, without the victim noticing, manipulating the behavior. And this is very destructive because if you start suspecting that maybe somebody's manipulating you, me, and I can't even tell, that's very bad for your autonomy. Um, so it's pretty obvious that, first of all, we need to have good security in these implants. That's kind of obvious. It's technically slightly challenging, but it's something that can be solved. It's a technical problem. 
The more subtle part is when we start extending our minds outwards, part of our minds are going to be residing on systems that are not exactly under our control. I'm a believer in Chalmers and Clark's extended mind hypothesis. I do regard a fair bit of my virtual possessions as part of my mind. But I discovered to my horror, shock and surprise and also glee uh, when I was in China a few years ago and Wikipedia was censored that, oh, I seem to be treating Wikipedia as part of my memory. Mm. I was looking up things without knowing it on Wikipedia all the time. Mm. And Memories that I believed I had were actually edited together by editors of Wikipedia and was in some sense a collective distributed memory that it was possible for a government to censor. Uh, unauthorized people could edit it. And um, I was up until that point not aware of it. So the problem here is when we extend ourselves, in some senses we might have to accept that other parts of our mind are not under our control. In some sense, that's normal. We don't control our subconscious very well. Uh, people who try to control the subconscious find that it bites back in complicated ways. And maybe as we extend ourselves out in the world, we might find that we actually get our technological subconscious that's not always on our side. But it also feels like, mm, just like we might want sometimes to have therapy to function better as full beings, we might need some technological therapy to ensure our integrity as uh, technosocial beings. Thank you so much. And in this uh, uh, really you know, deep uh, reflection, do you still uh, think that the notion of subjectivity and identity and the self is useful when, for instance, we're thinking of the self as maybe connected to different bodies or multiple bodies, eh? for instance, thinking of the work on Natasha Mbita Moore? Mm -hmm. How do you think of, again, notions like subjectivity, identity, the self are still useful or we need to reframe them and think about them? So I'm skeptical of the notion of a self. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I used to have the, the philosopher Derek Parfit as my landlord. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's famous, of course, for his book, uh, Reasons and Persons, with all these thought experiments demonstrate that personal identity might be more of a psychological model than a real thing. On the other hand, that psychological model is a model of something. I have memories of my childhood. I can see that I have plans that stretch over years and even decades of my life. Uh, and I think it's useful to have that kind of thing, even though the I thinking that is changing. Mm. So uh, Anders in 10 or 20 years is going to be a, a rather different being. But I still do have some influence over what uh, I develop into. And since I have certain values, and I think these values should be around, I might want to ensure that things go well for these future Anders, even though I'm hoping that's going to be a highly upgraded Anders, even to the point that eventually, of course, Anders 2.0 and 3.0 are beyond my current horizon. I can't really imagine what they are, or even recognize them maybe even as beings. But as long as the transitions are all done with a kind of full informed consent and awareness, I think that can be done well. The problem is, of course, there are many unknowns here. We don't really have a good language for thinking about modifying oneself, thinking about oneself as a project, and handling the subtleties about subjective experience. Uh, does it matter that I'm conscious? I do think that uh, you can have moral patients that are not conscious. Uh, I actually think that you could have unconscious robots that are still morally valuable, which makes me slightly unusual. But certainly being Conscious means that pain feels something. Pain is bad in a, in a much more clear sense than a robot responding, ouch, whenever it runs into a wall without actually doing anything. So the subjective experience might actually be important also to find ways of refining and controlling.
Now, I'm very lucky. I have a very positive subjective experience. I'm very cheerful, probably because of genetic reasons, but also because I've done do-it-yourself cognitive behavior therapy on myself. So that's great. And I think it's a nice thing to have good experience in the future, regardless of who or what they're attached to. But still, I think we are just at the start of thinking well about these things, because typically the words and terminology we have is all based on a very traditional Western idea about an atomic self, which is totally transparent to introspection and uh, has this uh, atomic soul that is a perfect identifier and eternal. The idea that we're biological complicated creatures that are modifying ourselves both directly and indirectly and accidentally, we still don't have a good language for it. Very, very interesting. So, of course, uh, there is uh, much more to talk about with you about the future, and we're going to go there with the second interview. But before we do that, there is one more question I'd like to ask you about the present and the close future, near future. So you're a supporter of, uh, for instance, the science of cryonics. And I want to ask you with the notion of subjectivity. And a question that I have, um, and I think, again, we're doing speculative mm. philosophy, but... What do you think is the condition of someone who is being cryonized before they are, if it's going to ever happen, resuscitated? Like, is that stage is like a dream state or is it like a coma state? Is there any consciousness in this, you know, stage that may mm. last 100 years, maybe 200 years or maybe 1,000 years? So where is the consciousness of a patient who is cryonized at alcohol right now, mm. for instance? So... I don't believe uh, cryonics patients actually are conscious, mm. except that I have this problem that I don't understand what consciousness mm. is. And on some days, uh, I'm just believing in panpsychism. I think everything is conscious, including the sofa. Mm. It's just that uh, beings like us who can talk and think and introspect do much more about the consciousness. So in some sense, if panpsychism is true, yeah, even a cryonics patient is in some sense conscious, except that it's probably a single state, since nothing is actually occurring. There is no change over time, if we're doing cryonics right, of course. But we can't know. But I would be very shocked. I would be really surprised. And I think this would be a revolution, actually, in philosophy and science, if we managed to tow out a cryonics patient and uh, he or she responded, at last, it's been so boring. <laughs> yeah, and... Um Again, if we can talk about mm. it, I see that you have, uh, mm. that's from alcohol, is that right? It's, yes, uh, yeah. So you are uh, planning to be cryonized eventually. Mm. And uh, first of all, what is your take about it? And when do you hope to be coming back mm. to which era, for instance? Mm. Also, should you be able to choose your, the era mm. in which you want to come back? How do you feel about the mm. stage in between? Uh, if you tell us a little yeah. more about your insight. Yeah, so... Uh, I'm wearing my cryonics tag openly. I kind of like to say I'm out of a freezer. Uh, I, most, I know a fair number of people who signed up for cryonics, but they're wearing it under the shirt just for uh, medical people to find if they end up at the hospital because they don't want to be too weird. Mm. On the other hand, the reason I'm wearing it is not just that it's nice transhumanist bling. It's also a very good conversation starter to start thinking about the future and our relationship to it. In many ways, this is a bit like a super secular San Christopher medallion. Uh, it's talking about a faith in the future. It's bringing up so many interesting assumptions in my interlocutors. But generally, I think cryonics is just a practically smart thing to do. I think there is enough probability, let's say maybe 5%, and I value my life enough uh, that I am willing to pay the money to do that. But I'd rather get to the future by not dying. 
I'd rather have people working on life extension coming up with a good way of uh, keeping my body healthy and, uh, and uh, young indefinitely. Being frozen is dangerous. There is quite a lot of risk that uh, it's not going to uh, work at all. There is a fair bit of risk that the suspension process causes irreversible damage. And even if you can uh, revive somebody, it might not be me. As I said earlier, I'm not too keen on personal identity being uh, super essential. So if there is a happy person in the future that borrowed some of my traits, that might be good enough. But I do think it's a rational choice to do. And I find it interesting to bring up of course, most people say, yeah, but what about your social context? What about your family? And I'm, of course, hoping to find my family in the future because hopefully cryonics or life extension has worked well enough and they have availed themselves to it. But sometimes I compare cryonics patients as refugees. We have spatial refugees today who need to flee from one environment to another one because they can't survive in the original situation. Cryonics patients today or temporary refugees. They cannot su survive in the present. So they're throwing themselves at mercy of the future and hoping that they can get revived. It might or might not work. The future might or might not be a nice place. But it still seems to be a rational choice to do. And uh, many people find it rational to be a refugee, including in time. So where do I want to end up? I personally want to be frozen as short as possible because I want to participate. I don't want to be sleeping in. I want to be a part of humanity and its struggle to actually get this act together. Uh, although I have this uh, humorous nightmare scenario waking up somewhere uh, and there smiling post-humans are standing around my hospital bed, which might be virtual, it might be uploaded, but, or it might be real. And they say, so Dr. Sandberg, we saved some of your PowerPoints. You made some ill-advised pre predictions about the future. Let's see how they turned out. And I'm just going to sm smugly smile and say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm totally embarrassed, but I would be alive. That's wonderful. Well, I think it's the perfect way to go actually into our second interview about the far future where yeah. May say, uh, Anders is going to find himself after yes. being cryonized. Yes. Yes, so my current big project uh, is writing a book that I tentatively call Grand Futures. And this is a kind of research project about looking at what are the limits to what intelligent life like humanity can achieve. Mm. So obviously we have a lot of problems right now that we need to overcome. and. Uh, uh, I think the problem here is that I write a lot of things about nuclear war and uh, information hazards and other dangers to humanity. And our entire institute is trying to deal with existential risks. And many people say, oh, that's so depressing. How can you even do that? And the answer is, well, we're really optimistic about the long-term future. If we survive and get our act together, the future could be really great. So my project is really about describing how great could it be? Can we measure that by different scales? What can we actually say about the very far future? What can you say about the very far future? And how far is this future? So my approach is very much looking at what the laws of physics uh, limit us to. Now, we don't know all the laws of physics yet which makes it also philosophically a very interesting thing about how do we reason about domains where we are uncertain about some fundamentals. So I use various techniques to deal with that. And it's a little bit like climate versus uh, weather prediction. So predicting the weather a few months advance is not possible because it's a chaotic, complicated system. But we can do pretty decent climate predictions because that's much more a lawful system. 
And similarly, human society is strongly affected by chaotic processes, human agency, a lot of things that are essentially random, or at least we cannot predict. We don't have any science or knowledge on how to do that. However, we can certainly say that there is a certain amount of energy falling on Earth from the sun, and that's being processed by whatever processes are on the Earth, and it's radiated out into space as waste heat. We can quantify that quite well, and we can say that produces certain limits on what can go on on this planet. So I'm using these methods to speak about where the limits for intelligence go in the really far future. So you asked me how far I can go. And basically, in my book, I start out by thinking about what about future post-scarcity societies? How rich could we become in a material sense? But also in a sense of um, uh, automation. What services could we get if we succeed in making safe AI? Uh, how nice could life be in a relatively materialistic sense? But then that leads to the next interesting question. Can you also do this in a sustainable sense? And what would the end game of sustainability be like? And most people in sustainability studies, they're struggling on making us more sustainable rather than unsustainable. They're thinking in timescales of hundreds of years or thousands of years. Uh, and that is rather short. And my question is rather, is there a form of sustainability endgame that would allow a civilization to sit on Earth indefinitely? And it turns out that there probably are methods of doing that. I can give a kind of existence proof by thinking about totally enclosed greenhouses with hydroponic gardening. That's probably not the right way of doing agriculture, but it looks like one can make a fairly strict argument that this demonstrates that it's possible to be 100% sustainable. Now, we might not want to go down that road, and maybe we will never achieve that, but it seems to be allowed. The really interesting thing is, we also have geophysics that allows us to think about what will the future of Earth be like? So we can notice that in about 50,000 years or so, our current interglacial is going to end. The polar ice caps are going to start expanding back. My native Sweden is going to be all covered by, with ice. And um, that's going to keep on continuing for a few millions of years of ice advancing, staying there for a few hundred thousand years, then retreating for a while with a new interglacial. We can use an archeological and paleontological record to actually reconstruct that future. It might be, of course, that in the future people say, no way, we're not going to allow this to happen. We're going to take control of the climate and prevent the Ice Age uh, from happening. But it's very useful to look at the base case where nobody does anything to think about it. On even longer timescales, we can consider the habitability of Earth. It looks like Earth's biosphere has about a billion years to go give or take a few hundred millions of years. This is an area where the models are still pretty primitive. The problem is, in the long run, the sun is getting brighter. And this is, again, a very well understood process. So this is not uh, very speculative. The problem is we don't know exactly when that leads to overheating and the carbon dioxide depletion on Earth. The irony is that right now we're struggling with too much carbon dioxide. But in the long run, Earth is going to run out of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because a hotter sun means that more silicates absorb it, which means that the volcanoes are adding a bit of carbon dioxide, but it's getting removed very quickly. So the plants have nothing to eat. And that means the end of photosynthesis. And at that point, life on Earth is going to have a rather bleak time. Again, we can start considering, could we extend the lifespan of the biosphere? Um, and it seems like it's possible. You could imagine, for example, putting a solar shade between Earth and the Sun. This might sound like an outrageous mega-scale engineering project, but you basically only need to add a napkin of material per year between now and a billion years in the future. 
So you could imagine automated devices that both are self-repairing and adding these napkins. And even if there are no humans around, we might actually gift the biosphere an extra billion years, which raises really interesting environmental ethics questions about, is this a good thing or a neutral thing? And many contemporary environmental ethics uh, concepts, even though they might say that life has value on its own, don't seem to be able to accept the idea that you could actually add extra years to the biosphere. So I'm writing a separate paper about this interesting problem. Yeah. This is very, very interesting. So of course I would like to ask a question about the human, uh, because you're talking about millions of years. So first of all, we don't know if there are going to be, like you said, humans around or not. But if there are going to be humans from an evolutionary standpoint, are they going to be still humans? What do you think of that? What do you think of the evolution that would have happened by then? So if we imagine that humans survive, but we don't do anything transhumanistic, we don't do anything weird, we never try to engineer our genes or anything, we're just living a society just like our current one, there's still selection processes going on. Young people being stupid with cars get them killed, they have fewer kids. Over evolutionary time spans, we, we would actually evolve towards being safer drivers, which maybe isn't a grand transhuman evolution, but we are going to change. And genetic drift is definitely going to modify. So if we wait a few million years, certainly those humans are going to be pretty different from us, just like we were different from the Neanderthals. And I don't think it's likely that we're going to keep our fingers out of our genome. Some people are going to be messing around with it, whether using advanced methods like CRISPR or just selective breeding. And that is, of course, totally ignoring all the other possibilities about using nanotechnology and, and advanced technologies to modify us in other ways. So I'm pretty confident that in the long run, we are going to be an utterly different species unless we decide very conscious that yeah, we are going to remain according to this standard and implement it, which is a really weird idea too. Kind of forcing ourselves to remain a species that is unchanged, even though the world around us over millions of years would become totally unrecognizable. I don't even think that is a desirable outcome. I'd rather see us branch out into new species. Yeah, and also talking about new species, let's also talk about new spaces. So do you think, of course, again, we're, when we're talking about such a long time range, um, do you think that humans by then would have also be living in different planets? And uh, what do you think of, in the transhumanist narrative is called space colonization. I like to say space migration. Mm -hmm. But what do you think, think again of like humans living, inhabiting other planets? Mm. In, in the long run, uh, that is the only way of surviving in the long run. Elon Musk is totally right about that one should become multiplanetary, except that he might be wrong about the planet part. This is actually where Jeff Bezos uh, and his uh, version of Gerald O'Neill's classic vision from the 70s, I think is much more right. That living on a planet has some advantages. It's a self-supporting system, but most of the mass of Earth is just sitting there holding us down. It's not doing anything, it's not supporting life, it's just being rock. You could actually use the mass of an asteroid belt to build habitats that could have a much larger biosphere in the surface. There could be much more life, not just more people. And I think that is actually an ecological niche that if we can achieve that, opens up the universe to us. So right now our ecological niche is kind of hunter-gatherers or agriculturalists. 
That other ecological niche would be taking solar power and asteroid material, converting it to habitats that contain and have elements of life and uh, allow us to build more habitats, solar panels, etc. It's basically a new form of ecosystem. And the amount of material that could be turned into life and habitats is enormous. Literally trillions of people could be living in the solar system, not just for a billion years as on Earth, but for several billion years until the sun really turn, turns into a red giant. And of course, if you actually can live on asteroid material and turn that into a habitat, you can imagine putting it into motion and moving it to other solar systems. Even if we don't do any grandiose fast spacecraft moving close to the speed of light, over very long time spans, other stars pass close by. So even if people just jump over in those rare occurrences, we would, within a few billion years, be spread across the galaxy. And of course, if some people actually want to go there faster, spending much more energy and engineering, that seems to be doable. I think that moving faster across the Milky Way probably requires you to go fully post-human. It doesn't seem to be very practical to accelerate any habitat that contains a flesh and blood human too close to light speed. For that, you probably want to use artificial intelligence or uploaded minds. So I have a guess that actually no flesh and blood humans are going to directly leave the solar system. It's all going to be our kind of software descendants that colonize and settle the rest of the galaxy. The interesting thing is, once you can move a little bit more than eight light years, you can settle most of the galaxy, because now you can get to most stars. You can, if you can only move a shorter distance, you're essentially stuck in a small cluster of stars. And similarly, once you can move beyond a few million light years, then you can settle all of the cosmic web we can reach. There is an upper limit about 4.9 gigaparsec away, about 16 million, uh, billion light years away, uh, that corresponds to those galaxies that's so far away that we will never catch up with them because of the accelerating expansion of the universe. So there is a limit to how much of the universe we can ever touch. It's finite, except that it contains billions of galaxies. So this is already unimaginably large. And all those billions of galaxies have hundreds of billions of stars. Each of these uh, systems uh, in turn could have a population of trillions, or if they exist as software in a, in a Dyson sphere, they, they could be a much larger number. So the total amount of beings that uh, could be spreading out from uh, Earth is simply astronomical. Thank you so much, Anders. And on this, I would like to ask you an ethical question. So, and you know, you were thinking you need to be posthuman to go to space. And of course, as a posthumanist, I'm thinking we should also be posthumanist mm -hmm. in the kind of mindset that we br bring to space. Uh, because again, if we go with a discolonizing mindset, the same issues that we've seen mm -hmm. on Earth where is going to be spread on, on, on space. Uh, and then we're going to see a war between Mars and the Earth. And we've seen the same story going on. So some people say, you know, like we with all the damage that we've done on Earth, it's not a good idea to go to other planets. How do you feel about this kind of ethical issue of you know, the human history and maybe not only changing the technology to go to space, but also the mindset? Uh, we're definitely changing our own mindset. Uh, in many cases, I think conflicts uh, have erupted because of perceived lack of resources. Now, space is interesting because on one hand, it actually is extremely sparse in terms of resources. Uh, any place on Earth, even the worst desert on the, or the top of the Antarctic ice sheet, is much more rich in resources than uh, the average place in space. Yet, if you can extract those resources, you actually have enormously much larger amounts available. 
So where are we to actually be able to fully settle space? Resources would actually not really be a reason for conflict. And uh, perceiving scarcity is simply, it's an error of mindset. And I do think we will also change our mindset quite a bit. Now, people have been discussing how space changes your mindset. There is this overview effect where astronauts looking down on Earth uh, feel awe and uh, realize I, this is a precious thing we need to preserve and we're all united. But there is also this question, when you look outward, what do you see? And on one hand, you have a somewhat skeptical view expressed by Stanislaw Lem in Solaris, where he says that, yeah, we humans say that we want to go out and meet the alien, but actually we just want more of the same. He doesn't think this is a good thing. He thinks it's a failing of humanity. But you can certainly imagine humans wanting to make the universe more human-like or Earth-like. Just repetition of that. Then again, there are always artists and uh, iconoclasts who are trying to make something different. Then you have a Star Trek vision. Uh, to boldly go where no man has gone before and uh, to seek out new and the species and so on. That is the idea that you want to go out and be changed by the experience. Now, which one is going to prevail? Well, most science fiction authors, of course, are very much on the Star Trek uh, side. Uh, despite all the interesting and unfortunate implications, even implicit in that uh, statement about uh, where no man has gone before, etc., but in reality, I think we are going to branch out in attitudes because it also depends on where do you want to settle, for what purpose. So one thing might just be to go out and explore. Another thing might be, I want to use these resources to become uh, something greater. I might want to build myself a Jupiter brain and have a brain the size of a planet and think super deep thought. Or I might just want to survive because I'm worried that my star is going to burn out. And by, by the way, we only have a trillion years left of the Stelliferous era. What about surviving after the stars? Some, uh, some people and beings might say, I'm going to pre prepare for that. While uh, the grasshoppers are kind of singing and dancing around here among the stars, we ants are quietly going to gather mass so we can survive a really long winter in, in, the, in the eras beyond the stars. I think there is space for quite a lot of diversity here. Indeed, way more diversity than you can probably have on a planet. Because if you're a self-modifying species, and exist in an environment that uh, has enormous amount of resources, that means very few constraints. Very interesting. So, Anders, yeah, there are so many questions I'd like to ask you. Uh, we talked about cryonics also, for instance, in the case of the fact that you support this as a science and as a personal choice. And we talked about timing, when would you like to be revitalized? Also, if you could choose over space, would you like to be back on Earth or on another planet? So, Earth is wonderful, but I really, I'm really itching to be among the moons of Saturn. Yeah, it might be a bit darker than around here, but wow, the beauty of the rings, the waves, the small moonlets around the rings are setting up ripples across them, causing long shadows. Titan, with its sand dunes along the equator, where the sand is actually in uh, ice, and the, the weird lakes of methane at uh, the poles. Uh, you have moon, uh, moons like in, uh, that are very, very different. I think that environment fascinates me tremendously. But I think I don't want to settle for one place. I want to go everywhere. The solar system is already wondrous enough. In many ways, that might be enough for us. But I think I want to see the rest of the galaxy. I want to see Sagittarius A star, the central supermassive black hole. And that's definitely going to require a very post-human body <laughs> to even get close to that. Um, I want to make use of resources in the supergiant uh, accretion disks around black hole, building Dyson spheres to use that energy to think more deeply. 
But I also want to see other galaxies. I want to see the Milky Way from the outside. I want to see the cosmic web by moving through it. And that is, of course, the things we know about right now. It's very likely, just like we discovered dark matter as a uh, shocking surprise, that there are other aspects of the universe that we're blind to. Really important aspects that we should be exploring it to pursue and then see, what do we do with this? What do we do when we see these revelations about how small sector of the world we previously inhabited? Being just on Earth, that's not enough. Thank you so much. And I would like to connect then one more question between the first interview and the second one. So Anders uh, mentioned that he's writing a book on these topics and we are all looking forward to reading that. Uh, of course, some philosophers would say, well, this is so far in the future that this is science fiction. And we know that you love science fiction and we talked about that in the first uh, interview. So do you think that this is like SF philosophy or is philosophy or is science or it's all of them? I think there is an interesting overlap. So once upon a time after all, science was natural philosophy. And I think I would probably call my book project Natural Philosophy because it's both about what we know about the nature of the universe and biology and the computation that tells us something about the ultimate limits of that. But then I want to turn that back and say, what do different philosophical value systems tell us we should be doing with this? And some of them might say, we should turn all the universe into happy minds. Others would say, no, it's important to think deep and excellent thoughts or just survive or do a diverse number of things. So I'm exploring this interaction between different forms of value with the physics. But then you get to the practical stuff. Can we, what can we do now? What does this imply next week? In many cases, it means that the, the future looks very glorious and has a lot of value no matter what your system is. So we better make sure it happens. We need to avoid going extinct prematurely. We want uh, to ensure that we can have an open future. But in the end, as I told actually some of my favorite science fiction authors when I met them at a conference, at the very least, you are going to get a reference book. If you want to have performance data for wormholes or how to build your own Jupiter brain, this is the book for you. Fantastic. So, of course, uh, we all are waiting to read in that. Uh, we will have to wait a little more because it's yep. uh, 1,000 pages. So it's, uh, it's a lot of editing that Anders is, is oh doing dear, at the yep. moment. <laughs> uh, but a lot of information is going to be very specific. And uh, first of all, again, if you are interested in what Anders is doing, please look uh, in, at his profile. He's, uh, he's a senior research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford. And again, he's a very well-known transhumanist. So again, Anders, first of all, Thank you so much for being here with us at our blog, Posthuman. It's been such a pleasure talking to you about all these fascinating topics. Thank you.